God, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Now, this morning, we really have a great story from the Old Testament. And kind of true confession time, I don't really say that too often about the Old Testament. Truth be told, it's hard for me to get engaged with some of these older stories. I, I gravitate much more toward the New Testament and the stories of Christ. But this is really a fascinating story. And part of what makes our story for this morning so thought-provoking is just how elusive it is. It's open-ended in several places. There are several places where it really just leaves you scratching your head. And to be honest, there are some aspects of this story that really kind of clash with other scriptures. So a lot of times when people read this, there's some mental gymnastics that are involved to try to figure out how we can square this story with the rest of scripture. It really is a very challenging story. But it's all of those difficulties that really make this such a wonderful story for us to read and to study. The story is about a wrestling match between God and Jacob. And so it really is so fitting that we ourselves have to wrestle with this story to come up with some meaning from it. It's really so perfect, like somebody planned it. So I would really encourage you this morning to wrestle with this story. It's a confusing story, leaves you scratching your head once or twice but to really struggle with this story and let this story struggle with you and see if on the other side you don't meet God just like Jacob did when he struggled with God. We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 31. You can follow along in your own Bible or the words will be on the screen. Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 22. It says, that same night, Jacob got up. He took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Jacob took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that Jacob had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But the man said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now you can see on your sermon notes that we're going to walk through this story before moving on to what it means to our lives today. And first, I would just invite you to consider the cast of characters that we have in this story. And they're really just two, God and Jacob. There is some mention of all of Jacob's wives and all of his children, which is just a helpful reminder that we are in a different world when we read these stories, right? We have different family structures than we are used to. So this is a little different. But there are two main characters, God and Jacob. Jacob, up to this point, has been presented as someone who is very calculating, someone who is very, very crafty. 
Jacob had been born as the younger of two twins. Jacob's older brother was Esau. And even at Jacob's birth, it was foretold that he was going to be a little crafty and that he would be the stronger of the two twins. When Jacob grew up, he bought his older brother's inheritance for a bowl of soup. His birthright, we often call it, but basically his inheritance. So Jacob is someone who has a plan to gain control of this inheritance. And then he immediately after that tricks their father into blessing him. Their father intended to give Esau a blessing, but through Jacob's trickery, he claimed this blessing for himself. And then after that, Jacob decided he had probably used up all his tricks at home, so he ran away to trick other people in other places. So he's fled from home when the story begins, and he's been living far away because he's really afraid of his brother. His brother had actually promised that as soon as their dad was dead, Esau was going to kill Jacob. So Jacob has run from home. Now the other character in this story is God. And what I would really want to emphasize to you is that up to this point in the Genesis story, God has been presented in much more personal terms than we traditionally imagine. This is a God who is very, very involved with people. We tend to think about God as transcendent and universal, some sort of spirit that we can't really see or can't really interact with, maybe. But an ancient Hebrew who's been reading or hearing these stories of Genesis up to this point might not have exactly that concept of God. Listen to just a little bit of what has already happened in Genesis. In Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve can hear God walking around, crashing through the, through the brush as God tries to find them, to talk to them. God chooses individuals, comes down and picks individual people and makes covenants with them, makes like handshake agreements with them. Sort of reminds me of uh, Ron Swanson, if anybody knows that character. Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation is someone who's all about his integrity and his word is good enough. Just a handshake is all he needs to seal the deal. And that's what, sort of what God is like in Genesis. He comes down, seals the deal. Jan is flipping furiously probably through her notes thinking, where is this? We're way, way off script. So God chooses individual people and makes covenants with them. God is also someone who appears in human form and he bargains with people. God has made one of those handshake agreements with Abraham. And so God thinks, well, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I have made my covenant with Abraham. I need to be honest with him. And so God tells Abraham what he's going to do. Comes down in human form and tells Abraham. And Abraham walks him back from the brink, bargains with him about, well, would you really, wouldn't you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And they have this wonderful back and forth. God is someone who has been very, very personal up to now. So when we read this story of God appearing and wrestling with Jacob, we tend to think that this must be an impossible story. This cannot really have happened. But to its original audience, this story was probably awe-inspiring. It was probably wonderful. But it probably didn't strike them as impossible. This is a God who gets involved in our lives. Sure he could do this. Next, consider the setting of this story. The setup, as I said, is that Jacob's brother had vowed to kill him as soon as their father was dead. And so Jacob didn't want that, and he ran away from home. It's a very dysfunctional family system. Now Jacob is coming home after many years away, and he's very, very anxious 
about seeing Esau again. Is Esau really going to make good on his threat and kill him like he said that he would? That's what leads Jacob to be spending the night by the Jabbok River. We've got some photos on the screen, I think, that will show you what this spot looks like today. But the Jabbok is an eastern tributary of the Jordan River. It's in the country of Jordan. From Deuteronomy, it seems like this river here was sometimes considered the extreme boundary of the promised land, this land that God had promised to give his people. Crossing this river may have felt like that moment on the trip when you know that you're getting close to home, you're close to your destination. I grew up in North Alabama, and my parents lived in South Alabama, so if we would ever go to visit them, we would hop on I-65, going north-south through Alabama. We would head down I-65 to exit 200 to Verbena, Alabama, of all places. And when I always knew that when we got off exit 200 in Verbena, that's when we were close. We were almost at Grandma's house. That may have been what this is like for Jacob. Stepping across this river is the moment he knows he's almost home. This story is a key transitional moment in a very transitional place. Third, let's just note some of these most interesting moments in the story. And then we'll see what they might mean for us today. In verse 23, it says that Jacob sent his entire family across the Jabbok River, but he himself remained behind on the far bank. Now, how fascinating is that? On the edge of home, he sends his entire family across into home, but he himself is not ready to make the trip across. We will do some remarkable mental gymnastics to avoid things that we are not ready for. You know, my, my wife and I, we lived in Northern Ireland for a long time, and not a long time, but a time. And that's a, a society that's just still very, very segregated between Catholics and Protestants. And it was not uncommon at all to meet someone in Belfast who was, say, a Protestant, living on a street that was sort of designated for Protestants. And that Protestant would have spent his entire life detouring around the street next door because that was a Catholic street, so he didn't go down that street. These remarkable detours, mental gymnastics that people would do to avoid things they weren't ready for. That's Jacob in this story here. Whether he's nervous, whether he's anxious, whether there's some sort of mental block, Jacob is just not ready to step across and enter the promised land. So Jacob may not be ready, but God is definitely ready. God is ready to get it on. In verse 24, God appears in the form of a man and wrestles with Jacob. It's one of the most remarkable moments in the Bible. It's not really narrated at all how it happened. When I imagine it, I just imagine God walking out of the dark and just jumping on him. There's no dialogue. God just walks in and boom. Because that's how it seems in the text, at least. Maybe they had a conversation, but it is just dropped in there like a bombshell. A man appeared and wrestled with him. Just like that. Now, the story tells us that this man that Jacob wrestled with was God. It's pretty clear about it. But it's been so hard for both for Jews and for Christians through the years to swallow because it seems hard to square with other biblical passages. The book of Exodus says several times that you can't see God and live. That's impossible, Exodus says. 
And then both the Gospel of John and the book of 1 John both say that no one has ever seen God. And one reason that no one has ever seen God is because God is a spirit. So this seems like a very difficult story. So occasionally you hear people argue that Jacob was really wrestling with an angel or maybe he was having a dream, basically anything to escape the idea that Jacob was really wrestling with the almighty creator of the universe in human form. But let's just take the story at its word, I'd say, especially given the way that God has been presented in Genesis. Let's just go with what it says. It doesn't seem like the folks who composed these these stories had any trouble at all believing that God could come down and wrestle with someone if he needed to get their attention. Then in verses 25 and 26, there's this threat that daylight is coming soon. God says, the man says, daylight is coming soon, so let me go. What's the significance of that? Why is the coming of daylight such a big deal? There are two schools of thought about it. One camp sort of seems to think that this has to do with those verses from Exodus about how no one can see God's face and live, that maybe God is actually concerned for Jacob here, that they can wrestle around in the, in the dark. It's all fun and games then. But if the sun comes up and Jacob actually gets a good look at God's face, Jacob is going to be a dead man. There's another school of thought that thinks maybe the significance of the sun is just that God has come to do this under the cover of darkness, and that's already wild enough, but God is certainly not going to be out here at high noon wrestling around with Jacob. That's just a bridge too far. So who knows exactly what the significance is? The significance is. But either way, the coming of daylight is going to end this contest one way or the other. Then in verse 26 comes this climactic standoff. You've got Jacob and God who have been very evenly matched up to this point. The story says that God saw that he wasn't beating Jacob, and so God struck Jacob's hip and disjointed it. And that leads to this climactic moment. Verse 26, God says, let me go for the day is breaking. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's kind of like a moment in an action movie. You've seen one of those times where you have at least two people pointing weapons at each other of some kind, and one person says, you put your weapon down first. The other person says, no, you put your weapon down first. That's what this is in the Bible, basically. God says, you go first, let me go. Jacob says, no, you go first, bless me. Jacob has such a hold on God that he's the only one who can answer God's request to let him go. But Jacob is the, sorry, the God is the only person who has the power to grant Jacob's request for a blessing. It's this remarkable standoff. And for one reason or another, God is the one who blinks first. God is the one who gives in to Jacob. It is a remarkable moment in the story. And then in verses 28 to 29, we have this exchange of names. Jacob gets this new name of Israel. In Hebrew, Israel means God fights or God struggles. So Jacob gets this new name as a marker that he is one of those people who is locked in a relationship with this God who struggles. It's a memorial to this event. Jacob has struggled with God and he's come out on the other side. 
And then Jacob asks for God's name. Now, presumably what's happening here is that Jacob is asking for a new name for God. The Hebrew Bible has this tradition of giving God new names to mark new developments in relationships with God. So there's the generic Hebrew word for God, which is El. The word El just means God. But for example, when God appears to Abraham, makes a covenant with him, God reveals himself as El Shaddai, God the Almighty. It's a new name that's given for God. So especially given the respectful way that Jacob asks here, it seems like that's what he's doing. He's asking for a new name. Seems like we've taken things to a new level, God, after this fight we had. So do you have a new name that you can give me? When I was in college, we would have referred to this as the DTR. I don't know if college kids still use that acronym, but for us it meant define the relationship. If you've got two people who are spending a lot of time together, you're wondering if there might be some kind of chemistry there, one person has to work up the courage to have the DTR talk, to find out if this is really something. Are we just friends? Are we, is there something romantic here? Let's define this relationship a bit. Well, Jacob here tries to have the DTR, and God says, not so fast, Jacob. God doesn't outright refuse him with a request for a new name. God doesn't say no, but God just says, why do you want to know that? Why do you want to know my name? It's a polite way of refusing. And then to keep Jacob interested maybe a little bit, the story says that God did bless him. God says, hey, Jacob, come back later for the DTR. You know, we're not ready for that right now. Ask again later. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting conversation. Not a rejection, but God's not saying yes either. And finally, in verses 30 to 31, we see how Jacob's life is changed forever. Jacob doesn't learn a new name for this God that he struggles with, but there is still an experience. This is still an experience that he's grateful to have survived. Verse 30 says that Jacob called the place Peniel because he said, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Peniel in Hebrew means face of God. So he names this place he is after this encounter that he has had with God. And then verse 31 says, the sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. It's just a beautiful mental picture. I think we're meant to imagine that God and Jacob have wrestled all night long. They deadlocked just before dawn in that twilight period when you know, the fog is still on the ground. The world is starting to brighten, but the sun hasn't come up yet. And then the sun crests the horizon the first light hits Jacob, and God is gone, but Jacob is changed. Jacob is never going to be the same again. He's walking with a limp. He will always have that limp because of his struggle. Jacob is different because of this encounter. So what does this scripture mean for us? You know, this is, can be a very difficult story to wrap our minds around sometimes. And it's true that we have added, you know, we have added other scriptures to the biblical canon after this one. We have received more information about God, and most of all, I think, we have seen Jesus. We have seen Jesus as the fullest revelation of what God in human form looks like. So it's true that God has revealed more truth to us than just this story from Genesis. 
But at the heart of this, there is still tremendous meaning in the story of God and Jacob. His meaning that was valid for the people who first heard it, and I think is still true for us today. First, and most importantly, I think the story is teaching us that struggling with God is a good thing. Struggling with God in this story is portrayed very, very positively. The clear takeaway from this story is that it was a really good thing that Jacob and God had it out on a riverbank at the edge of the promised land. Maybe it was painful, but it wasn't bad. That's why Jacob gets renamed Israel. It's a marker of the struggle that he had with God. Now you might say, well, that was a special case. God has never appeared to me in human form and wrestled with me before. I don't know if it still holds or not. It's fair enough. In one sense, this is a very special situation. But in a much deeper sense, I would really suggest that this story is entirely typical of the Bible. If we think about the Bible as a whole, this whole collection of stories that we have here, and you try to wrap your head around what is this collection of books that we have, there are a lot of images that you could use. But I think one of the best images that you could have for yourself is that this collection is a story of people's struggle with God. These are stories of people who are trying to wrestle with who God is. Who am I in relation to God? What does God want from me? What do I want from God? This is a story of struggle, of people testing God, questioning God, trying to grow closer to God. Now, there are all kinds of scriptures that we could see that in, but one that comes to mind is in particular is 2 Corinthians, where Paul writes about a problem that he had that really is a struggle with God. Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. No one knows what that was, but something that he was struggling with. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, what Paul is describing there is a struggle with God. This struggle that he was locked in for some period of time where he was asking God for something and he was not seeing it. But Paul realized, ultimately, that this struggle was a good thing because it led him to better understand who he was in relation to God, who God was in relation to him. Paul could better understand how God was trying to transform his life. Now, if you don't leave here with anything else this morning, I would really hope that you would just take that reality with you. If you feel like you're wrestling with God, that is not a bad thing. If you feel like you are struggling with God, questioning God, you and God are in a little bit of a a rocky place, that is okay. That conflict is actually a sign of something healthy. One of the key principles of, of marriage counseling or interpersonal counseling is that where there is at least some tension, some energy in the relationship, there's still some hope. It's couples who come in and just have no conflict at all almost. Their spark for each other is just completely dead. There's no 
passion at all left in the relationship. That's a relationship that is unlikely to be fanned back into flame. The fact that you are having some conflict with God is a sign of something positive. It's a sign that you care about that relationship. You're invested in that relationship. You should be more worried if you have never had any struggle with God. It may mean that you're indifferent to what God is doing around you and to your relationship with God. Struggling with God is never a bad thing. Another truth that's revealed in this scripture is that struggling with God prepares us to struggle with daily life. Now, it seems like we get a hint of that already in the name that God gives to Jacob. When God gives him the name Israel, God says that it's because Jacob has striven with God and with humans and has prevailed. So it seems like the struggle with God comes first. Struggling with God prepares you to struggle with other humans who are around. But we really see this in the next chapter, in chapter 33. Immediately after this story that we read, when the sun comes up and God is gone, Jacob lifts up his eyes and he sees his brother Esau coming toward him. And you remember that's the whole reason that Jacob had left home, the whole reason that he's anxious about coming home, is seeing Esau. He sees Esau coming to meet him, and then Esau receives him kindly, with mercy, with justice, and grace. And then Jacob says, since you have received me with such favor, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now, that is not an idle statement coming from someone who just saw God's face a few hours before. That is a powerful message about the way that encountering God, really struggling with God, changes the way that we encounter other people, the way we encounter our daily lives. It's true for us, too, that spending real, intentional time with God, that changes the way we go through our day, the way we interact with other people. It's sort of a professional hazard, I guess, of ministry that sometimes ministers get so busy, so caught up in the things that they're doing that they feel like working for God sort of takes the place of their own relationship with God. You just feel like you have done too many Bible studies and too many sermons. You can't just read the Bible on your own anymore. You always have to have some angle of what you're going to do with it or what you're going to get out of it. And I can tell you, from my personal experience at least, going to conferences, continuing education, workshops, whatever, meeting other ministers, you can usually tell who it is who really has that struggle with God. Who's getting up in the morning, really studying the scriptures, really relating to God, really encountering God for themselves. The ministers who are doing that, they talk, they act, they think differently from the ministers who don't. And that's true for all of us, too. You know, if you are really wrestling with God and investing time in that relationship with God, it will make a difference. It will prepare you to struggle with life. If you don't struggle with God in that relationship with God, you will not be as prepared to struggle with life. And life is hard. I don't know if you noticed. Life is hard. So I would definitely recommend that you struggle with God instead of life. It'll make a difference. Lastly, the scripture seems to be suggesting that things that should be impossible really become possible with God in the struggle. We mentioned already that the scripture should be impossible according to other parts of scripture. You should not be able to see God and live. 
And the way I wrap my head around this is to think, you know, that may be true. If you, in the book of Exodus, if you're just kicked back at the foot of Mount Sinai, waiting to see God when he shows up to give Moses the Ten Commandments, yeah, sure, then it's not permitted to see God and live. But if you are locked in a personal wrestling match with the God of the universe, all the rules sort of go out the window, don't they? Things become possible in that moment that might not be possible in other moments. And I've seen enough in church to see that that seems to hold true. There are moments when people are just locked in some kind of Herculean struggle with God that things happen that I certainly can't explain. I can't explain how someone gets some kind of tragic news, some kind of horrific thing happens to them, and they question why God would do this to them, why God would allow this to happen to them. And somehow that person comes out more grace-filled, more spirit-filled on the other side than they did before the tragedy. I can't explain how someone gets a medical diagnosis out of the blue that they were not expecting, and they struggle with God about that in prayer. And somehow, through that struggle, that diagnosis changes in a way that seems miraculous. I can't explain how that happens. It really seems like the principle that this scripture is teaching us is that, you know, there are some rules, we might say, that govern our spiritual life. And those, those rules usually hold. But if you are really struggling with God, really wrestling to know God and who God is, things become possible that would not ordinarily be possible in a way that is both amazing and also frightening at the same time. Think back to that moment that I asked you to identify earlier in worship. That place where you feel like you might be struggling spiritually. Or that place that you might be wrestling with God. Based on what we see in the scripture, I think I can really tell you with confidence that your struggle with God is not something to avoid. It is really an integral part of the life of discipleship. That's why we're looking at this passage in our, our series on discipleship. Rather than asking yourself how you might avoid that place where you feel a little bit of tension with God, I'd like to ask you this morning what it would mean for you to continue that struggle. What would you do differently in that area of struggle? Or what would you continue to do in that area where you feel some uncertainty, some tension with God? What would it mean for you if you almost borrowed Jacob's phrase straight out of Genesis and just made it your own? God, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What would that statement mean in your life? If it feels like you're in a rough patch with God, don't give up on it. Don't avoid it. See it through, because that is really where the path of discipleship lies, is right through that struggle. If you feel like you have been locked in some sort of struggle with God for a long time, and you would appreciate someone else to join you in that struggle and pray with you at least for a moment, if nothing else, I would love to do that. I'll be at one of the prayer tables in the back in just a moment. Or if you have been struggling with God really on a deeper level about what it means that God wants to have a relationship with you, that Christ came in human form 
to show us what God is like, to take away your sins and invite you into a relationship with him. If you've been struggling with that, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that too. But either way, as we close in worship, I would invite you to really ask yourself how you can praise the name of God through your relationship with him, whatever struggle you might or might not be in, but how you can use that through that to praise God's name.